Welcome to the latest Urex podcast. I'm Luke. I'm the Deputy Executive Director of Urex. Today I'm joined by Steve Bishop, who is our Director of Research and Information, and we will be talking primarily about the control library. Later in the podcast, you'll also be hearing from the Urex news team, who are going to be focusing on climate this time, and in particular, greenwashing. So stay on for that. But first of all, we're going to be talking about the control library. So probably my first question to you, Steve, is why are we doing this now? Why a control library? Why did we start this piece of work? Thanks, Luke. I'm going to sort of answer that question probably in two parts. I think, firstly, we are on a journey to develop a series of of standards and references at ORX, working with our, our members. We've identified a number of core components of how they think about operational and non-financial risk, where some consistent industry-level references are incredibly helpful to them. We really see this as helping the industry to innovate by driving that consistent and modern language, but also helping our, our membership to understand the types of typical risks or controls or indicators that their peers consider. That's very useful to them because they can use that to help try and drive consistency within their own organisation, but also potentially to standardise and simplify the way in which they think about operational and non-financial risk internally as well. So we started this journey with the development of a a reference operational and non-financial risk taxonomy that set out the typical causes, events and impacts that our members think about when they are understanding, identifying, assessing, mitigating risk. I think controls made sense as the next natural reference to build. We, through talking to our members, identified that controls practice both within an organisation and across the industry is divergent. In fact, the work that we've done in this space bore that out through evidence. There are some pockets of industry standards, for example, for COBIT, for, for technology and such standards as NIST for cyber, but they tend to be quite risk specific. There's nothing that stretches the breadth of operational non-financial risk. So it seemed to make sense to take on controls. Again, as I mentioned, in terms of the overall journey, they can really be used to help an organisation sort of understand and standardise and rationalise the controls that they operate. That's always been important, I think. But really, I think in a post-pandemic world with the sort of rapid pace of digitalization across the industry, the need to be resilient as an organisation in the face of the complex world in which they operate Having a clear and consistent understanding of your control environment is really important. In summary, sort of macro level, we think it's important to develop these standards and references for the overall risk. For controls, I think particularly that ability to understand your your complete control environment, the types of controls that you should have in place is a really important part of operational and non-financial risk management. Okay, that's great. So just to summarise very briefly... This is just the latest step in a series of pieces of work focused on providing those references that allow the industry to coalesce around good practice, allow them to accelerate their thinking and also probably innovate along the way. So that makes an awful lot of sense. What are we actually talking about when we say control library? What is this kind of nitty gritty? What does that even mean? Good question. So so essentially, we have set out 
around about 760 or so reference or typical controls that exist to mitigate the risks that we have in our taxonomy. So these controls are aligned to the ORX reference taxonomy that has 16 level one risks. That's things like transaction processing risk, people risk, information security and cyber, so on and so forth. We set out the typical controls that we see in the industry for mitigating those particular risks. What that looks like in practice is it creates a hierarchy, if you like. So against each of the level two risks in the reference risk taxonomy, we have the sets of typical controls. And that essentially sets out how you can consider and think about your overall control environment. Fantastic. So it's quite a big thing, 761 controls, I think you said. So how did we go about creating that? That sounds like an awful lot of work. No, absolutely. It was a significant undertaking, something we were able to do with McKinsey and Co as our knowledge partner. And really the basis for developing our standards overall is to use our members' data. And that's really, really important to us. We don't want to be seen to be sitting in in a room just sort of coming up with what we think is the right answer. We want to use data we can collect from our members to actually form these, these references and these standards. And that means that they're sort of grounded in what that industry view is already. And what that work then involves is consolidating that in a sensible way so that we can play that back to people. How we went about that specifically for controls We collected data from around about 50 ORX banking and insurance members. We had around about 50,000 data entries. So that's the sort of controls that were submitted to us or the control library information that was submitted to us by our members. Working with McKinsey, we were able to use innovative machine learning techniques to be able to map that data back to the ORX reference taxonomy to come up with a sort of first cut of the types of controls that that you may have in place. And really what we did then was enter into quite an extensive review and refinement process. So we reviewed that output versus some of the libraries that we'd collected. We deduplicated, we tried to make things non-specific to certain jurisdictions or business lines so that they're applicable across our membership. We used experts within McKinsey to help review and supplement some of that data where we saw less maturity. So in the data we collected from our members, there was perhaps less controls around things like model risk. So we we were able to sort of supplement that information with some best practice. And then what's really important as well is that we have an advisory panel that was made up of representatives from our banking and insurance members who were able to contribute to what this data looked like, to review it and to provide us feedback so that we really came out then with a solid final reference library based on members' data, but also really then reviewed and polished to come out with something that then really sets out those typical controls that our members may have in place across the risks. Fantastic. So a a blend of a data-driven approach supplemented with subject matter expertise uh, on the top, which I guess leaves you in a position where you have something that's very credible because it reflects really what's going on and it's objective for the same reason as well. Once you've got the library, so if if one of our members or, or someone else takes the library, what would they do with it? What would be their use case? They've got a few options. I guess it depends where they're on in their own controls journey. 
When we did this piece of work, we also looked at practice in the controls space. And the work that we did talking to our members revealed that around about sort of 30 to 35% or so of the members involved have a developed and what they would describe as relatively mature control library. But obviously that leaves relatively high 65 to 70% of firms that don't yet have a fully formed control library. I guess that means that you have a number of options as to what you can do with this library. You can use it to benchmark what you have already within your organization. You can use it to help accelerate your own process. I think it's important to note that you don't have to pick up this library and use it in exactly the form that it's in. You could take components of it. You could use it to help supplement work that you've already done. But it helps you to take collective industry thinking and apply that quite quickly to your own organization. The members that had sort of formed their own control libraries talked about the complexity and the challenge of building those libraries and something that was taking quite regularly between 12 and 24 months to do. We really see this as a tool as helping to accelerate that process. So giving you an industry view, but also helping to save you time and money in that process as well. Further down the line, we also, though, really see having this library as a, as a way of helping to share information and benchmark information across the industry. And that's not something that's been possible to date without some common reference for controls and something that we'll hope to exploit going forward. What's probably particularly interesting is that once we release this to our members, and our members have been using this since around about May, June time, Quite a number of them have reported that they've already kicked off projects to review their own processes, data, controls against the library. They're thinking about how they can incorporate it. They're making changes based on it, whether that's either discussions with the first line about potential areas of control that could be missing or things that they can do to really sort of enhance their own practice in this space. And I think we've had really positive feedback about the help that this has been providing to them in those activities. So looping back to right at the start, you mentioned that this was just the latest stage in a series or a program of work where ORX was developing reference standards. We've done the cause, just published the controls library. What's next in that program of work? So absolutely right. This is part of a series that we're developing around the sort of core, core building blocks, if you like, to support development of operational non-financial risk. The next natural step, having done risks, having done controls, is to look at indicators. And we've already kicked off that piece of work and we'll be aiming to have something that's published towards the end of quarter one, early quarter two next year is the intention, subject to how much work it involves as we progress through. But we've collected around about four and a half thousand indicators from across our membership. Again, we're aligning those to the reference risk taxonomy We're looking at how we can potentially link that reference library of indicators to the controls as well. And I think should again be a a really hopefully helpful tool for for the industry. Subsequent to that, some of the other sort of key areas that we're going to look at building references and standards for on the list is process and an important business service. And as part of future development, we may also look at business line and product as well. But Indicators is the one that's underway, and we'll have something to show on that in the first half of next year. That's great. So possibly the most important question for those people who are listening and they're interested in finding out more, how can you access the library? What do you get? Who's it available to? Okay. So, yeah, it's very easy for members. 
You can go in through the member's website homepage. What do you get? You get an overview report. There's access to information around practice as well if you're a member. But you get a report that talks about what the library is. You get a guidance document that explains how to use it. And then obviously, most importantly, you get the library itself. There are two ways in which you can access the library. We have a downloadable Excel version of the library, but also, and I think something we're we're really pleased with, we also managed to pull together an an interactive version of the library. So we have a, a version of the library where you can drill through particular risks and look at the families of controls that sit underneath that. You can search and explore the library in an interactive way, which I think if you're trying to understand the types of controls that are in the library or you have a specific area of focus, so perhaps third-party controls, you can search that and, and the visualization creates you a view of those controls. If you're not a member, you can purchase the control library. You can get in touch with us through www.orx.org. If you want to purchase the library, you get access to the report and the guidance and the library and the visualization as I've described. So hopefully an asset that whether you're a member or not is available to the whole industry. That, that, that sounds really good. So a whole range of things that really match up to the different use cases that you referenced before. Absolutely, yeah. I think that's probably all the questions I have. I'd just like to say thanks, Steve, for taking the time to take people through the control library. Don't forget, stay on the podcast for RX News, covering greenwashing, as I mentioned, and a bit about the impact on insurance of Hurricane Ian as well. Hello and welcome. My name is Lily Richardson. I'm the RX News Manager. And in case you haven't heard of RX News, we're a subscription service from RX, which covers publicly reported operational risk loss events in the financial sector from across the globe. Now, I'd like to introduce Fern, the RX News Assistant Manager for Editorial. Thank you, Lily. Hi, everyone. In this month's episode, we'll take a brief look at the top five largest losses from September 2022. All losses are reported in US dollars. We'll also focus on climate to mark the launch of the ORX News Climate Roundup. The Roundup is essentially a selection of media stories from open sources specially curated by the news team to illustrate the challenges financial and non-financial firms are facing regarding ESG-related risks. For this podcast, I'm joined by our foreign news researchers, Stanka and Joseph. Over to you, Joseph, for the top five. Thanks, Fern. In fifth, we have Wells Fargo settling for $145 million with the U.S. Department of Labor over charges it caused an employee retirement plan to overpay for company stock. At number four, RSA Insurance agreed to a settlement of $161.1 million with institutional investors who suffered losses as a result of RSA's Irish units misconduct between 2009 and 2013. In third place, crypto trading company Wintermute suffered a hack leading to a loss to the firm of around $162.2 million in DeFi operations. In second is Regions Bank, which was ordered to pay $191 million by the US Consumer Financial Protection Bureau for unlawfully charging customers surprise overdraft fees, known as authorized positive overdraft fees. The largest losses this month mark the end of an industry-wide probe into staff's misuse of personal messaging apps and record-keeping failures. Goldman Sachs, 
Deutsche Bank, Credit Suisse, Citigroup and UBS all settled with the SEC and the CFTC for $200 million each. That's great. Thanks, Joseph. And now over to Stanka, who will kick us off with the first climate-related story. Thanks, Fern. So we'll be looking at a system outage suffered at Korea Investments and Securities, or KIS. The night between the 8th and 9th of August 2022, during the country's heaviest rainfall in 80 years, KIS's transaction system suffered a 15-hour outage. The fourth and fifth floors of the firm's headquarters were flooded. Although the data processing computer center was on a different floor, untouched by the water, the flooding short-circuited the electrics and cut off the power supply for the transaction system. You mentioned the outage was overnight. Was the impact lessened because it happened outside business hours? Um, Unfortunately for KIS, it was not. Both its home trading system and mobile trading system were disrupted, which impacted after-hours trading. And this, in turn, had a knock-on effect on retail investors and overseas stock trading in the U.S. It just shows how extreme weather events such as these have the potential to be so disruptive. In fact, operational risk events linked to climate are increasingly appearing in the ORX News database. You can find related news stories under the Climate Risk Industry Loss Event and Climate Scenario categories. Stanka, can you please talk us through a recent story covered by the news team? Sure. In late September, Hurricane Ian wreaked havoc across the southeastern U.S. The hurricane caused 150 mile per hour winds, flooding, the spread of diseases, power outages, which left 3.5 million people without power in Florida, North and South Carolina, Virginia and Georgia. There was vast physical damage and loss of life. Nine financial firms temporarily closed hundreds of their branches, some of which suffered physical damage. In our news digest about Regents Bank, there are extensive examples of the impacts and the remedial measures that the firms are taking following the hurricane. Could you tell us a little bit about the long-term impacts of such severe weather events? Absolutely. According to a recent story from the FT published in the Climate Roundup, the entire insurance sector in Florida is in crisis. Even before Hurricane Ian hit Florida in September, the state's property insurance market was already facing huge difficulties. For example, the FT went on to say that several companies in the region had already fallen into insolvency this year due to underwriting losses exceeding $1 billion for the second year running. Some insurance are said to be relocating out of state cutting down renewals, leaving homeowners with diminishing options for coverage and soaring prices. I have some sobering figures reported in the Washington Post, which put the absolute devastation of Hurricane Ian into context. As of October 4th, 89 people had died. This figure is likely to rise. Over 6,000 flights were cancelled on the day Ian hit Florida, and two subsequent days also experienced the same level of cancellations. Florida issued 2.5 million evacuation orders, and around 2.7 million people were left without power. The losses to the insurance industry are estimated to be around $60 billion, making it the second highest loss in history after Hurricane Katrina caused nearly $90 billion in inflation-adjusted losses. Well, those stats are definitely quite sobering. 
Um, Sarah Breeden, the leader of Bank of England's climate change work and member of the Network for Greening the Financial System, spoke about how firms are still not sufficiently mindful of the impact of their investment on the climate. She gave a speech in April 2022 on balancing the net zero tightrope. In it, she called into question the financial sector's motives behind making greener choices. Breeden warned that increasing scrutiny on businesses' climate actions, both from regulators and the general public, seem to focus more on the visible greenness of their lending and investments rather than their actual and eventual impact on the climate. This approach has allegedly cultivated a focus on the firm's own image rather than greening the financial system and the wider economy. Oh, that's interesting. So how are regulators dealing with this? Um, We've seen that they're increasingly paying attention. One area in which a lot of enforcement action is happening is greenwashing. We've discussed in our May episode that the British advertising watchdog accused HSBC of greenwashing. It's been reported by the BBC that their ads about tree planting and their net zero emissions target have just been banned. It's the first greenwashing action the regulators have actually ever taken. The Competitions and Market Authority actually found that 40% of all green claims made in the UK could be misleading. A full review will apparently be carried out in 2023 with the aim to take action against the offending firms. We saw a concrete example of an ESG enforced action in May this year when BNY Mellon agreed to pay $1.5 million to the SEC for misrepresenting how it applied ESG principles when making investment decisions. BNY Mellon claimed that all investments in its overlay funds had undergone an ESG quality review. However, many investments were lacking a quality review score and the ESG research process was not required for all investments until July 2020. The SEC said that BNY Mellon responded to the fine by improving policies and procedures and revising the language for its disclosures to investors. ESG enforcement seemed to be a hot topic in Oprisk at the moment. The BNY Mellon fine was the third most viewed story on the ORX News website in the second quarter of 2022. Most definitely. If you want to explore this topic further, take a look at this month's Climate Roundup on the ORX News website. Thank you, Stanka and Joseph, and to our colleagues Izzy and Natasha for your support in producing this podcast. Over to you, Lily. I hope you enjoyed listening to this month's podcast. If you'd like to know more about the top five losses, then please visit the Rx website, where you can find the top five losses for each month, as well as a range of uprisk reports and resources. You can also read the full digest for each of the stories discussed in this episode on the Rx website. Just search rx.org. Join us next time to hear next month's top five losses. Thank you.